This message is part of the teaching provided by House on the Rock Fellowship, a church caring for the Miami Valley region. Before you listen, be sure to access the notes in the download section of the message page. Have a Bible ready. Thank you for being our guest. Hey, we're moving from May into summer, right? Summer is all but here. And with that, some of you are making summer plans, summer trips, vacations. You are looking for opportunities to leave this world behind, a world of mundane, a world of gray, a world of responsibilities, and maybe get away for a little bit. Maybe it's one day, maybe it's two days, maybe it's a week. Maybe it's a simple retreat, maybe it's a longer excursion. You're making summer plans, some of you are. At the uh, Mad Hatter's Tea that we had laid yesterday, the ladies' tea, special thank you to Elise and her team. Thank you so much for all of their work and effort. One of the activities was that the ladies had to break themselves up according to where they wanted to go to, where they wanted to vacation to. Maybe it was Hawaii or the Caribbean. Maybe it was a, a European getaway, and they would go to various corners in the room. Where would you go if you had the opportunity? If you could escape... Where would you get to? What, where? Mediterranean. The Mediterranean? There you go. In his book, The Great Divorce, C.S. Lewis posits uh, a fantasy, a suggestion. What would it be like if those people who have found themselves in hell were able to vacation a little bit up to heaven? Interesting idea. It's actually a very old idea called refugium, the idea that maybe every now and then those people who are caught in bondage and torment are allowed to escape, to be refreshed into heaven. And so he writes a fantasy about what that bus ride might be like. What's the bus ride like when you leave hell below and you move up into heaven? What's the experience as he contrasts the great divorce between what is hell and what is heaven? And it's not a book that you base your theology on, say, well, he thinks that going to heaven's like a bus ride. No, that's not what C.S. Lewis is doing. But he is positing a very interesting suggestion on what the essence of hell might be and what the essence of heaven might be. And he describes hell on earth as a gray town. It's gray. It's blah. It's very vast, it seems. But there doesn't seem to be anybody around. Lots of space for people, but he doesn't see any people. And he makes an interesting observation. Can I read just a little bit for you? It seems the deuce of a town, I volunteered. And that's what I can't understand. The parts of it that I saw were so empty. Was there once a larger population here? Not at all, said my neighbor. The trouble is that they're so quarrelsome. As soon as anyone arrives, he settles in some street. But before he's been there 24 hours, he quarrels with his neighbor. Before the week is over, he's quarreled so badly, he decides to move. Very like he finds the next street empty because all those people have quarreled with their neighbors and they've moved. So maybe he settles in. If by any chance the street is full, he goes further. But even if he stays, 
It makes no odds. He's sure to have another quarrel pretty soon, and then he'll move on again. Finally, he'll move right out to the edge of the town and build a new house. You see, it's easy here. You've only got to think a house, and there it is. That's how the town keeps on growing. Leaving more and more empty streets then. That's right. And time's sort of odd here. That place where we caught the bus, it's thousands of miles from the civic center where newcomers arrive from earth. All the people that you've met were living near the bus stop. But they'd taken centuries of our time to get there by gradual moves. What about the earlier arrivals who first came here? I mean, there must be people who came from earth to get the town to your town ever longer ago. Oh yeah, there are, said my neighbor. But they've been moving on and on, getting farther and farther apart. They are so far off by now that they could never think of coming to this bus stop to retreat at all. Astronomical distances. There's a bit of a rising ground near where I live, uh, and the chap has a telescope. You can see the lights of the inhabited houses where the old ones live, millions of miles away, millions of miles from us and from one another. Every now and then, they move further still. And that's one of the disappointments. He describes hell, hell on earth, as this ever-expanding gray space where people move farther and farther away from each other. In ever-increasing isolation, ever-increasing angst, ever-increasing frustration. And because they are so far away, they would never even think of making a vacation to heaven. And do you know what that kind of isolation is like? That kind of separation. Maybe you've experienced it at certain times in your life. You've made choices or people have made choices that haven't brought us closer together. Instead, they've pushed us farther apart. When it's easier to quarrel than it is to make up. When it's easier to live in our choices than to confess our brokenness and be healed. C.S. Lewis makes some interesting observations in this very tiny book. But I think maybe some of you know what it's like to live in a hell on earth. And maybe you're ready to leave. In fact, maybe you've come here today and you're ready for more than a vacation. You're ready to leave that life behind. Well, I'm glad that you're here. We've been in a series working through the Lord's Prayer. In Matthew 6 and in Luke chapter 11, where the disciples come up to Jesus, Lord, teach us to pray, which is different than asking, teach us how to pray. Teach us how to pray is about information. Give me some information. They ask for formation. Teach us to actually do it. And so he imparts not just a model prayer, but a way of seeing the world and seeing reality. You remember how it starts? In your notes, maybe, maybe you've been memorizing it or you're learning it. We talked about, it starts with the character of God. What's the first line to the Lord's Prayer? Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Why don't you write that down? Maybe you know it already. Or maybe you're learning to memorize it. Let's write it down in your notes. The character of God. 
Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Carmen will bring it up for you so you can write it down if you want. If you're online, maybe you could write it down yourself. Our prayer, our model of prayer, the worldview that Jesus is putting before us begins by anchoring ourselves in who God is. Father, source of life and love and goodness. Who is in heaven? Who's not limited by what's corporal, what's not, he's not limited by what's earthly. I can, I can reach him here. I can reach him at home. I can reach him in Baghdad. I could reach him in the past. I can reach him in the present. He's over all of that. Hallowed be your name. May you be glorified in everything that I do and how I say, how I act, how I live. May you be glorified in how we live and act and the choices that we make. Character. And then we talked about kingdom. Your kingdom come. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Let's write that down. Maybe you have it memorized. See if you can do it all from memory. Your kingdom come. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Jesus invites us to recognize the tension of two realms at odds. A space of death, a space of sin, a space of defeat and corruption. And the kingdom of God coming, heaven to earth, bursting into our reality to bring life and healing and restoration. May that kingdom come. May your will be done. Not where I'm king, but Jesus, where you're king. Where you are king with your people in your place under your law. Again, if you haven't been here for this part of the series, uh, you can go to whoishouseontherock.com and get caught up, and there's other resources there for you. Last week, we talked about provision, right? Write down the next line. See if you can do it. Give us, what? This day, our daily bread. Yeah, provision. Give us this day. Gift us what we need for this day. Rooted in the story of the Old Testament of manna, where God daily was bringing a discipline to his children. Find me every morning, God, every morning, you and your family, and gather what you need for that day. I'll provide it. I'll provide it. You just have to go get it. I care about your daily provision. I care about what you need physically. And Jesus even layers his own life on top of that. He says, I am living bread who's come earth to heaven And let's continue with the prayer today. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts. As we also have forgiven our debtors. Write that down. And forgive us our debts. As we also have forgiven our debtors. I'm not going to deal with the last part of that petition as we've also forgiven our debtors. I've talked uh, recently, even just recent series about the priority of forgiveness, one with another. Um, I don't want to talk about, I don't feel like that's where we are this morning as a church family. I feel um, the Holy Spirit wants us to anchor on those first four words. Forgive us our debts. And learning to live in that space. Jesus says, Give us today our daily bread and 
forgive us our debts. He connects the two. He connects actually a whole series. But so I'm, if I'm thinking about God's provision, he, how he cares for me physically, and there's this daily responsibility I have to engage God and to seek God's face and to recognize he is the source to me. If I have daily provision and I'm to seek it daily, and then he goes, and is Jesus maybe then saying, I need to address my spiritual condition daily in the same way I talk about my physical, the need for physical provision daily. That in the same way, I'm to come before Jesus and say, hey, will you give me what I need for today? In that same way, am I to come before God the Father and say, forgive me today. Forgive me my debts. It's an us thing. It's a we thing. It's a corporate thing. But it's a daily thing. Let me ask you a question with that in mind. What is Jesus saying about us? To include that phrase in this model prayer. If this is a prayer that is to be repeated and said often, to say daily, to say three or four times a day, to say when you wake up, to say when you go to bed, that it's to anchor and establish uh, our prayer life. What is Jesus saying about the human condition? If he includes those four words. In the petition. What does he say about humanity? His commentary on us. If daily we can say, forgive us our debts. I think Jesus is saying, we have a deep corruption that requires daily confession. There is about us a deep corruption that requires daily confession. That I can't go 24 hours without having to honestly and truthfully come before God and say, I need you, Father, to forgive me my debts. Forgive us our debts. The Bible uses a multiple means to help us wrap our brains around the lethality and the seriousness of sin. Okay, Some Bible traditions and church traditions like to anchor themselves in one metaphor. Like when we talk about sin, it's this. And, and that can be, that's great. Um, it's pretty narrow, and the Bible's a whole lot more creative and artistic than that, because the Bible really wants you to understand it. The Spirit says, this is so important. We're going to attack this thing called sin from multiple angles. Let me give you an example. The first time the word sin is mentioned, do you know? It's not Adam and Eve. It's actually their son, Cain, in Genesis chapter 4, where God admonishes Cain, says, hey, sin is is waiting at the door and it wants to devour you. So sin's being put forth and, it, and we're to understand it and see it a certain way. It's like a monster, a beast that's crouching just outside the doorway and it doesn't want anything else except to come in and destroy me. You want to think about sin? Think about it that way. It's a hideous, ravenous, hungry beast. 
you read forward in the Bible and you get to like the, the tabernacle passages in the, in the Pentateuch and, and what the tabernacle is to be. And sin begins to be described like it's an infectious disease that needs to be cleansed. In fact, once a year, the priests are to go through the tabernacle and to go through all the instruments of the tabernacle to give a deep cleanse. It's called the Day of Atonement where the blood is applied to sacred space because heaven has made itself known to earth and in that overlap, it needs to be cleaned. How many of you have parts in your house that need a deep clean? Why? Because, yep, because the world gets in, don't it? Somebody like, actually, yeah. Sin is described as this thing that it's, it's a disease and infection that saturates and corrupts. And, and the priests have to go through and apply the blood to it in such a corporate manner so that it can be cleansed. It's another way of understanding what sin does. We understand a pandemic, don't we? We understand a disease that kills, works its way through, yeah, devouring us from the inside out. You get to the New Testament and sin is sometimes described as a burden, a heavy weight that presses down on us. Paul admonishes us, those of you who are spiritual, when you come across someone who has been caught, tripped, crushed in a transgression, those of you who are spiritual, restore him. Bear one another's burdens. Can you imagine a weight pressing down? You, you, you can even feel it, can't you? The weight of sin, the weight of disobedience, transgression. Sometimes the Apostle Paul will use the terminology of like a debt that needs to be repaid. Here, debt is what Jesus uses in the prayer. To think about sin is to think about a debt that has to be reconciled. Imagine, if you will, you're walking through Tiffany's in New York City. And you all these crystal, and you grab and you start breaking, and you grab and you start breaking. You go past the jewelry cabinet, and you grab and you break, and you grab and you break, and you grab and you break. Some of it you've done on purpose, some of it you just by accident. But what do they say? You break it, you bought it. And through the course of my life, as I wander through life and walk through life, I break creation. God's good creation. Myself. Choices that I make that corrupt and break me. Choices that I make that corrupt and break family and loved ones. How I treat earth. How I treat others. Systems that I support that break God's good house. You break it. You bought it. Here's just four of the ways that the Bible helps us understand the seriousness of sin. And what we need to understand, that it always ends in death. Whether we're talking about a monster or a disease or a crushing burden or a debt, the consequences are always death. So of those four, I want you to pick the one that you like the least and hold on to that one. Okay? Whether it's a monster or it's a, a pandemic disease that destroys you from the inside out, or it's a burden that crushes you, whether it's a debt that has to be repaid, find the metaphor that you don't like. And I want you to hold on to that one. Because that's what you're dealing with this morning. A 
but to that. The Bible offers other words, right? Because if it's a debt, what does Jesus say? I can forgive it. If it's a burden, you know what Jesus says? Let me carry it. If it's a killing disease, maybe it's been passed down generation to generation to generation, sinful habits in your family, why don't you let me heal it? If it's a monster, let me slay it. Forgive us our debts. John, in one of his letters, gives us a theological foundation to help us. So would you please turn to the book of 1 John chapter 1. I'm going to work us, walk us through verses 5 through 10. 1 John 1, 5 through 10. If you're not, 1 John's a tricky one. It's easier if you start at the back of the book and work your way forwards because it's not a very big one. Revelation and, and Jude and you got 3 John, 2 John, and there you are at 1 John, okay? 1 John chapter 1, look at verses 5 through 10. This will help us as we think about this petition. 1 John chapter 1 verse 5. You follow along. This is the message that we've heard from him and proclaimed to you. What's the message? God is light. In him is no darkness at all. If we say we have fellowship with him while we walk in darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. But if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another. And the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all sin. If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we say we have not sinned, we make him a liar. His word is not in us. Let me just walk us through this, okay? Look at verse 5. This is the message that we've heard from him and proclaimed to you. What is it? God is light, and in him is no darkness at all. That helps us, doesn't it? God is light. Can you imagine that? Imagine beautiful, perfect, pure, blinding, bright light. That is God. You want to understand God the Father? It's like that kind of light. In him there is no darkness. You can imagine darkness, coldness, sin, the isolation of death. That and God don't mix. They don't mix. But I dwell in this, but God is that. He says, this is the message that we've heard from the beginning, okay? If we say we have fellowship with him while we walk in darkness, we lie. We don't practice the truth. This spiritual condition, this deep corruption that I have requires honesty. I must be honest before God if I will walk in community with God. Fellowship requires honesty about sin. At every level. One with another, one with God. I need to be honest. If we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another. And the blood of Jesus cleanses us from all sin. 
If I am honest, what do I, I experience two things. I experience community, community with God. I experience the cleansing of Jesus' blood. You see how he's kind of already packed this full of these biblical images that saturate the story? If I am honest with this sin of mine, with this condition of mine, if I step out of the darkness and the falseness into the light, God, this is me. God welcomes me and the blood of Jesus cleanses me because sin, you can, it's, it's like this disease that kills and corrupts. If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. I need to be honest about the present sin. I need to be honest about today. If we say we have no sin, this is your liar. I mean, Jesus' command was love God with all of your heart. All of it. Some of you just woke up within like the last hour, right? Let's be honest. Like, all right, church doesn't start till 11 o'clock. Dude, I live 10 minutes away. I skipped the auction, man. I just, I sleep till like 10.45. I'll drive. I'll have plenty of time. I'm good to go. Right? The condition is so deep, I can promise you that even within the last hour, you have not loved God with all of your heart. There have been thoughts, there have been words, there have been deeds. I've had thoughts, I've had words, I've had deeds. The corruption is that deep. I need to be honest about the present. Presently, yes, I'm battling sin. I'm dealing with death. I'm dealing with the monster. I'm facing the burden. I've got this debt daily. It's a real thing. If we confess our sins, if we bring it to light, if we are honest about it, he's faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. I'm honest about it. I experience community and cleansing. He uses the word forgiveness. That's debt language. If we say we have not sinned, past tense, we make him a liar and the word is not in us. I need to be honest about the past. And to be honest about the past. Well, can't the past just stay in the past? Why do we need to bring it back up again? Well, you never dealt with it in the first place. So if you broke it yesterday, you still bought it. If you were infected yesterday, it still haunts you and haunts you. I need to be honest about the present. I need to be honest about the past. So I shouldn't be surprised that that Jesus tells me on a daily basis, part of corporate prayer, part of individual prayer, is recognizing, yes, I, I, need, I need physical provision, but I need to recognize the spiritual condition. Forgive us our debts. Because I'm a hot mess. I'm a hot mess. When I confess, when I step from darkness to light, it releases the floodgates of heaven's love and grace and light to do all the good things that a loving God does. Here I am. The last few months we've been practicing within our corporate worship, a moment of confession. 
Some of you are familiar with this. You grew up in a church tradition that has that in your liturgy, in your flow of worship. Some of you come from different church traditions and you're like, what are we doing? This is vain repetition and, and the Holy Spirit has left this place. Whatever. I'm just busting. A little. But I've never actually walked us through why we use that prayer and why those words are there. Because it's very intentional, and it's a, it's a liturgical prayer that's been practiced in the church for centuries. And what I wanted is, Carmen's going to bring up the words. I just want to walk you through it so you can see this is what we're saying and why we're saying it in light of Jesus' instructions. Okay, Carmen, go ahead. Let me just walk you through this. This is, how, this is what we pray. We're going to do this in a little while. We say this, most merciful God, we confess. Why? I'm a hot mess. Right? We confess we are deeply corrupted, sinful, broken, burdened, in debt. We recognize, God, you need to. We have sinned against who? You. We've sinned against you. That was David's prayer. Against you and you alone have I sinned. Right? In thought, in word, in deed. Because the corruption goes to that level. Sin functions in those three spheres. It's not just what I do. It's what I say. You're accountable for every word that comes out of your mouth. And most of the time it's not what you say, it's how you say it. We are a very rude people. We are a very unkind people. We are not very gentle. But it goes even deeper than that. It's about how I think. I'm responsible for my thoughts. And here we get in the world of temptation and lust and envy and greed. And what I've done and what I've left undone. What I've done, sins of commission, I did that. I thought that. I said that. That bring about sin, damage, to God's good creation, or omission. I should have done that. I should have said that. Go ahead, Carmen. We have not loved you with our whole heart. We have not loved our neighbor as ourselves. So the end of Matthew's gospel, come to Jesus. What's, what's the greatest commandment? Like, what's the most important? There's a lot of them out there. I don't think I can do them all. But what's the most important one? Simple and easy, but simple. Love the Lord your God with all of your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Love your neighbor as yourself. If you do that, you'll be fine. If you love God with everything, if you love your neighbor like you love yourself, you'll be fine. And so, this is why i got to pray this daily. I need to recognize this daily. I need to walk in God's grace on a daily basis because daily I'm not loving God with all my heart and I'm not loving my neighbor. We're truly sorry. We humbly repent. We turn from that to your grace. To leave that behind. Not just to recognize, yep, I have a porn addiction. No, you're going to leave that behind. Yep, I get drunk on Friday nights. Yeah, but you're going to leave that behind. Yeah, I yell at my spouse. Yeah, but you need to leave that behind. 
Yeah, I cheat on my taxes. Yeah, I'm not generous with my income. Yeah, my church attendance is really, really shoddy. Yeah, but you repent. You need to leave that behind. Keep going, Carmen. So for the sake of your son, Jesus Christ, have mercy on us and forgive us. Do something. God, intervene in this corrupt life that I am in. Intervene in my sinfulness. Come heaven to earth, kingdom down here to where I am, to this hell that I've created, and burst in with your love and your forgiveness. And God, when you do that, when you do that, I will be transformed. We will be transformed. We'll delight in your will. We'll walk in your way to the glory of your name. God, as we leave death behind, we experience more delight. Delight. We're able to walk the good path and our life reflects your goodness and you are glorified in heaven. Carmen, would you take us back to the beginning? Why don't we walk? We're just going to pray through this just to get the words in here. Get them get get in here. Then I'll start to make some applications. Pray with me, please. If you're online, read it too. Most merciful God, we confess, we've sinned against you in thought, in word, in deed, by what we've done and what we've left undone. We've not loved you with our whole heart. We've not loved our neighbor as ourselves. We're truly sorry and we humbly repent. For the sake of your son, Jesus Christ, have mercy on us and forgive us that we might delight in your will, walk in your way to the glory of your name. Amen. Yeah. So how do we move forward this week with adding this to the Lord's Prayer? At the bottom of your notes, there's a shape. It's a hexagon. And we've kind of been using this for those who are a little bit more spatially aware in their memory to recognize the different parts of the Lord's Prayer. The top is character. Then going clockwise, you come down kingdom. And then there's provision. And then this week, let's add forgiveness. Right? Character, kingdom, provision, forgiveness. Forgiveness. Forgive my debt. Bear my burden. Heal this disease. Slay this monster. But Jesus connects it with this daily prayer for daily bread. There's this physical provision, but I need to recognize every day that there's this, this, this spiritual condition that I, I, I must wrestle with. So how might I be able to deal with this daily? Here's a suggestion. What if you prayed the Lord's Prayer at the end of the day this week? And I'm saying never stop, but as you lay your head down, and you settle into that one part of the petition, forgive us our debts. Sit in that space. Lie in that space. Knowing that it's deep. Let's talk about thoughts. What thoughts? What words? God, I said this and it was unkind. God, I posted this and it was foolish. 
God, I did this. God, I didn't do this, and I knew I should have. God, I knew when I walked by, you prompted me, and I didn't because I had my things. God, that was wrong. That was wrong. So what if at the end of the day, we, we went slow with those things, things that I've done, things that I've left undone? Include family. Pray for your, you've got kids at home, pray for grandkids. Absolutely. Job, the beginning of his story says he's such a righteous man. He has a habit of praying for his kids, whether or not he's known they did anything or not. He just, he starts confessing for his kids. I don't know, maybe they did something they shouldn't have. Would you, God, would you forgive them? Pray for your neighborhood. Ask God's forgiveness over, you know, your town, your nation. But make sure it gets back to you. The us includes you. The us includes me. I need to get to me. How many of you feel that our, our nation's condition calls for prayer? Go ahead and raise your hand. You don't have to be Republican or Democrat or anything. I'm just saying, you know what? I think we should pray for our nation. How many of you feel that? Raise your hand. Yeah, awesome, cool. Maybe you look down at the border. You're like, man, the border's messed up. We just, just, there's no order at the border. We need some walls. And yet you live in such a way that you let sin run rampant in your life. You have no border in your brain. You have no protection over your mind. You have no guard at your heart. Gas prices. Gas prices, right? I mean, you're like, man, these gas prices are jacked up. I, can't, I hate this. I can't get anywhere. God, help us with the gas prices. And yet your faith is running on complete empty. Because you don't do anything to foster your faith. Baby food. We're out of baby food. Baby food's a problem. We should pray for baby food. Yep. And you won't do anything to feed yourself on the goodness of God's word. There's a beet shortage. Now that's something we can pray about. <laughs> that, that we really need to deal with. I appreciate the generous donors out there and their beets and pickled egg contributions. Thank you. If you weren't here, this is from last week. It's an old joke. Not funny for you, but I laughed. Um, the president. Dude, he's a hot mess. What is he doing to our country? Pray for the president. And yet the sanctity of your own personal kingdom, you have let Satan run amok. And for that, you are responsible. Forgive us our debts. There are some things that I feel just because of the nature of where we live the water of culture that washes over us that we must have to actively swim against or it will drown us. But I think things that House on the Rock just as a church family is very susceptible to as I have counseled and walked alongside of us. 
One is lust. Lust. Pornography's wrong. It'll kill you. It'll kill you. It'll kill your marriage. It'll kill your kids. The whispering thoughts to linger long over a woman's body who is not your own. Men, it's wrong. Stop it. Stop it. Women, if this is something that you struggle with, stop it. Our words, we can be very unkind to each other. Very unkind in what we say and how we say it. Six and stones will break my bones, but names will never hurt me. You've heard me say, that's a lie. And how we post on social media. Drunkenness, it's wrong. Getting buzzed is a sin. Stop it. You are opening the door to generations who will have to deal with the monster, the disease, and the burden of your choices. Stop. What I feel probably plagues House on the Rock the most is very sneaky. It's called sloth. You've heard me mention it before. You're like, I'm not lazy. Preacher man, you only work one day a week. That's not sloth. Sloth is the resistance to the demands of God's love. Meaning God says do this and you go do something else. You find something else to do. I just need some me time, pastor. That's all. So we don't serve when we should serve. We don't show up when we should show up. Like it would take an act of God for you to go to church four weeks in a row. Sloth is very serious in our area. It's spiritual. But here's the thing. As I do it, it affects you. As you do it, it affects me. The corporate light of the church dims because of our unwillingness or, or our spiritual ineptness or immaturity to deal with sin and bring it before God. So the light switch turns and turns and turns and turns and turns. It's our prayer that a house on a rock becomes what? A city on a hill, which means the light needs to be on. If the light's not on, then the world walks right by. And because we won't deal with our sin, the world's like, oh, I didn't even know you were there. Oh, God forgive us our sins. Towards the end of his book, the Great Divorce. I think C.S. Lewis helps drive this point home. There's a conversation between the ghosts of hell and the spirits of heaven. 
and they interact one with another and, and, and Lewis uses this to deal with some theological issues. And the ghosts of hell are shriveled and, and they're, they're like smoke. They're not, there's not a lot of substance to them. But he notices one man in particular who has a very noticeable, noticeable challenge. I think it might speak to where we are right now. So if you will indulge me a couple pages. I saw coming towards us a ghost who carried something on his shoulder. Like all the ghosts, he was unsubstantial. They differed from one another as smoke differs. Some had been whitish. This one was dark and oily. What sat on his shoulder was a little red lizard. And it was twitching its tail like a whip, whispering into his ears. As we caught sight of him, he turned his head to the reptile with a snarl of impatience. Shut up, I tell you. It wagged its tail and continued to whisper to him. He ceased snarling and presently began to smile. Then he turned and started to limp westward away from the mountain of God. Off so soon, said a voice. The speaker was more or less human in shape, but larger than a man, and so bright that I could hardly look at him. His presence smote on my eyes and on my body too, for there was heat coming from him as well as light, like the morning sun at the beginning of a summer day. Oh yes, I'm off, said the ghost, but thanks for your hospitality. It's no good, you see. I told this little chap, he indicated the lizard, that he'd have to be quiet if he came, which he insisted on doing. And of course, his stuff just won't do here. And I realize that, but he won't stop. So I, I must go home. Would you like me to make him quiet? Said the flaming spirit. An angel, I now understand. Of course I would, said the ghost. Then I'll kill him, said the angel, taking a step forward. Whoa, 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 look out. You're burning me. Keep back. The ghost retreated. Don't you want him killed? Well, you didn't say anything about killing him at first. I hardly meant to bother you with anything so drastic as that. It's the only way. Shall I kill it? Well, that's a further question. I'm quite open to consider it, but it's a new point, isn't it? I mean, for the moment, I was only thinking about silencing it because up here, well, it's just so embarrassing. May I kill it? Well, there's time to discuss it later. There's no time. May I kill it? Please, I never meant to be a nuisance. Really, don't bother. Look. It's gone to sleep on its own accord, and I'm sure it will be all right now. Thank you ever so much. May I kill it? Honestly, I don't think there's the slightest necessity for that. I'm sure I shall be able to keep it in order now. Ah, I think a gradual process would be far better than killing it. The gradual process is of no use at all. Don't you think so? Well, I'll think over what you've said very carefully. I honestly will. In fact, I'll let you know. But it's a matter of fact that I'm, I'm very frightful, frightfully unwell today. It would be silly to do it now. I need to be in good health for that operation. Some other day, perhaps. 
but there's no other day. All days are present now. Get back, you're burning me. How can I tell you to kill it? You'd kill me if you did. It's not so. Well, but you're hurting me now. I never said it wouldn't hurt you. I said it wouldn't kill you. Oh, I know. You think I'm a coward. But it isn't that. Really, it isn't. I say, just let me run back to tonight's bus and get an opinion from my own doctor. I'll come again the first moment I can. This moment contains all moments. Why are you torturing me? You're jeering at me. How, how can I let you tear me to pieces? If you wanted to help me, why didn't you kill the thing without asking me before I knew it? It'd be all over by now if you had. I can't kill it against your will. It's impossible. Have I your permission? The angel's hands were almost closed on the lizard, but not quite. But then the lizard began chattering to the ghost so loud that even I could hear what it was saying. Be careful. He can do what he says. He can kill me. One fatal word from you, and he will. But then you'll be without me forever and ever, and it's not natural. How could you live? You'd be only a sort of ghost and not a real man as you know are now. He doesn't understand. He's only cold, bloodless, an abstract thing. Oh, it may be natural for him, but it isn't for us. Yes, I know there are no real pleasures now. They're only dreams, but aren't they better than nothing? And I'll be so good. I admit at times I have gone too far in the past. I promise I won't do it again. I'll give you nothing but really nice dreams. All sweet and fresh and almost innocent. You might say quite innocent. Have I your permission? Said the angel to the ghost. <laughs> I know it. It will kill me. It won't. But suppose that it did. You're right. It would be better to be dead than to live with this creature. Then may I. Oh, blast you. Go, go, can't you? Get it over. Do what you like, bellowed the ghost. God, help me. Help me. The next moment, the ghost gave such a scream of agony, such as I've ever heard on earth. The burning one closed his crimson grip on the reptile, twisted it while it bit and writhed and then flung its broken back to the turf. Oh, it's done for me, grasped the ghost, falling backwards. For a moment, I could make out nothing distinctly. And then I saw, between me and the nearest bush, unmistakably solid, but growing every moment solider, the upper arm and the shoulder of a man. Then, brighter still and stronger, legs and hands. The neck and golden head materialized while I watched. And if my attention had not wavered, I should have seen the actual completing of a man.
the Spirit says to you this morning? May I kill it? May I kill it? Now is not a good time. Let me talk to some others about it. I don't know. Do you need to kill it? May I kill it? Really, do we have to go that far? May I kill it? Would you stand with me, please? In the story, the lizard is nothing less than lust, whispering in the man's ear, corrupting his soul moment by moment. For you, maybe it's something else. You know the burden, you know the sin, you know the weight, you know the monster. But great is the graciousness of our God. Let's leave hell behind. Let's be restored in the goodness of Jesus Christ. Would you pray these words with us this morning? Carmen. Most merciful God, we confess we've sinned against you in thought, in word, in deed, by what we have done and what we have left undone. We've not loved you with our whole heart. We have not loved our neighbor as ourselves. We are truly sorry and we humbly repent. For the sake of your son, Jesus Christ, have mercy on us and forgive us that we might delight in your will and walk in your ways to the glory of your name. Amen. Thank you for sharing your time with us, and we'd love for the journey to continue. If you're a guest, would you consider reaching out to us? We would love to come alongside and encourage you in any way that we can. If you're someone who's joined us today and you are desperately reaching to find hope wherever you can, Again, Jesus came that we would find hope. You can find hope today. If you want to send us a short note, a member of our hope team would reach out quickly, promptly to come alongside and see what we can do to encourage you in whatever storm you might find yourself in. That's why Jesus came. That's why we're here. Jesus said there's two ways to live your life. And a wise man, a wise woman, builds their life on Jesus' instructions. 